morning journey. What a privilege it is to be back. It's been a great weekend. Thank you, Cody, for this opportunity. And thank you, Anne Amanda, both for the marriage event. What a blessing that was Friday night. If you weren't able to attend, I highly encourage you trying to make it to the next event in February. It's going to be great. And I think last time I was here, Joseph was using a keyboard. Now he's up to a grand piano. I'm impressed. <laughs> Whatever he's doing, he's doing it right, isn't he? <laughs> All right. So as, Joni, jo, as Cody said, we are uh, part two, sub-series of Jonah. And probably don't have to provide much context, as Cody said. This is a pretty familiar book, uh, and I'm sure most of all of us are pretty familiar with it to some extent. So we know that, you know, Jonah was called to go preach to the city of Nineveh, but he refused and ran from God. Then God sent a storm to reclaim him and made things such that Jonah was voluntarily thrown overboard into the ocean, and then he was swallowed by the great fish. And then the result is, in the belly of the deep, Jonah prays the prayer of faith, and he grasps the grace of God. Because leading up to this point that we're talking about today, Jonah was blind to the reality of grace. And if Jonah, a great prophet, a man of God who talked with God, and had no doubt theology and biblical knowledge well beyond any of us here, if he can be blind to grace to the point that it distorts his life, it's even more likely that all of us in this room, to one degree or another, are also blind to the God's grace, the meaning of God's grace. So until we get it the way Jonah had to get it, we will be just like him, virtually locked up, a shadow of what we can be and what we should be. Grace is the essence of the gospel. And may God help us grasp the infinite riches of his grace. Now let's read. I'm going to start with the last verse of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. <clears throat> so legend has it that in the late 1800s, James Bartley 
was supposedly swallowed by a sperm whale during a whaling expedition. The whale was eventually harpooned, and when they began skinning the whale and carving out the stomach, they find James Bartley alive inside with his skin bleached by all the gastric juices and supposedly blind for the rest of his life after being inside the whale for about 36 hours. To my understanding, that story was pretty well circulated and gained a lot of popularity using references to people and specific locations and convincing details that made this story seemingly true. But eventually it was debunked and turned out to be only an elaborate urban myth. But still a pretty good story, none the least. There's another story, but a true story, of a man being swallowed by a whale that we could all probably remember. Because this just happened about two years ago. On June 11, 2021, Michael Packard, a commercial lobster diver, was on his second dive of the day when he was swallowed by a humpback whale. The Cape Cod Times reported that the 56-year-old was inside the whale's mouth for around 30 or 40 seconds before spinning him out. He suffered a dislocated knee and some soft tissue damage, but other than that, he returned diving as soon as he was able. And we could probably remember that story. And of course, headlines can't help but recall the story of Jonah. But now, I don't know about you, but the more that only causes me to be more skeptical about the whole situation of someone being swallowed by a fish. So, because the more you look into the possibility of that actually happening, for someone to be swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights, the less likely it appears to be true to me. That's just my opinion. But this has been an entertaining topic for people over the centuries, trying to prove the Bible to be real. Because people have literally tried getting inside and measuring all types of different whales and sharks and fish to determine whether or not it is possible. And in our modern era, I'm not convinced of a specific type of whale or fish that would make this story possible. I think the sperm whale is probably the most popular theory. But to my understanding, we're still discovering new sea creatures on the regular, and we also know many have become extinct. But just think about it for a minute. The larger fish that don't have sharp teeth and can easily fit a human inside their mouth and in their stomach only has an esophagus about the size of a basketball because they only feed on the small fish. Other large fish are the predators, and they have some pretty large teeth you have to get past before getting into their stomach. But regardless of type of creature it is, if somehow someone did make it to the stomach, you have to deal with the lack of oxygen and the gastric acid that's used to help break down the food for absorption and digestion. So, do we really believe that someone could be swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights and live to tell about it? Do we really take this story literally? No. What really happened was that Jonah was thrown overboard and he was actually able to swim to, the, swim to shore, swim to land, and spend three days and three nights at an inn that was called the fish. And there in the fish, he wrote this great prayer. You see, a lot of people tried to discredit the Bible because of this story. 
How are we to believe the book that says a man was literally swallowed by a large fish for three days and three nights? Well, first off, we need to recognize that Jonah was a real person. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14 as living during the time of Jeroboam II, about 793-753 B.C. And Jesus himself refers to Jonah as a historical person in Matthew 12. Getting caught up on Jonah actually being swallowed by a fish and trying to prove what type of creature it is or whether or not it's possible is beside the point. Because we can speculate all day. Was it the Leviathan mentioned in Job, Psalms, and Isaiah? My daughters are really into dragons right now. So I like to think of a sea dragon swallowing Jonah. Because the literal Hebrew translation is sea creature. That could be a sea monster or anything. Whatever it was, God appointed this creature. Sperm whale, sea dragon, it doesn't matter. Because this account of Jonah is presented as a miracle. And that's how it should be interpreted. It's not a parable or a myth. It's presented as a factual historic event. This was not a natural event. It says God appointed or prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. This was nothing less than a one-of-a-kind miracle orchestrated by God. And that should not be a problem for the Christian because Christianity is based on miracles and the resurrection is one of them. From our human perspective, one miracle was just as impossible as any other miracle. And once you start to doubt miracles on rationalistic grounds, then you're on the road to rejecting them all. And if you believe in God, then you have to believe in the greatest miracle of all time. And that is God creating something from nothing. He spoke life into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. If you believe in that God, then to believe that a man was swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights should be a non-issue. But you know what? If you don't believe this story actually happened, then you miss the whole point. Because this story is not about a great fish. This story is about a great God. And the point is, as Chris preached about in chapter 1, God sent a storm, and they ended up casting Jonah overboard. He sends a storm, absolutely natural. He sends a storm to show you that you're not Lord of the storm. You're not God. You're not the one who knows who's... You're not the one who knows. You're not the one who's supposed to be competent enough to know what's right and wrong for you. And the storm comes to wake you up and bring you to repentance. But in the heart of the storm, there's a fish. And the point is, storms are natural, but the fish is a miracle. Judgment is natural. Grace is a miracle. That's the whole point of the story. Because in the heart of the normal, in the heart of judgment, in the heart of troubles, there's breathing room for repentance. In the heart of every storm that God brings in your life to show you that you've built your life on things that you shouldn't have built on, God will find you a place where you have just enough breathing room to think it out. 
Inside that storm, there's a fish. Inside that natural thing, there's a miracle. And it's always a miracle of grace. And that's the point. The fish is God's grace. The fish is Jonah's salvation. And we can see this in his poem, his poetic prayer here in chapter 2. It's probably one of the most fascinating prayers found in all the Bible. And if you just read this prayer in isolation, you would think you're reading from the book of Psalms. And if you have a good reference Bible, you can go through this chapter almost syllable by syllable and discover that Jonah is either quoting or echoing the Psalms from beginning to end. And what's that a sign of? Well, in his case, Jonah, who had turned and ran from God's word, it's a sign that his mind has now turned back and is overflowing with God's word. He can't get enough of it. He's hungry for it. Whenever an individual is spiritually awakened, that's what happens, doesn't it? You can't get enough of God's word. And this should show us how good of a prophet Jonah actually was. Remember, let's not forget his occupation. He is a prophet. He is a mouthpiece of God. He's called out by God. He's of the school of the prophets sent by God. And he knew the scriptures. And when he spoke, he would have spoken truth as a man gifted by God. And we can see how gifted he was in this prayer. And this begs the question, how can someone like Jonah be so close to God, but yet so far away? And the short answer to that is his lack of understanding God's grace. You see, Jonah was comfortable. He was happy. Very good being a prophet in his homeland Israel. But when, called, when God called him to go to Nineveh and speak you know, to the Assyrians, this flipped his world upside down. And we should expect that, because let's not be too hard on Jonah. Because this, to my understanding, this call to go into Assyria and to speak to the Ninevites, calling out against them to repent, would kind of be like us, kind of be like somebody going into Berlin, Germany, in the middle of World War II, and telling them to repent. So it's no wonder he ran in the opposite direction. He was perfectly content preaching in Israel, but when called to go outside of his comfort zone to a people who was a direct threat to his homeland, he freaked out. But it goes much deeper than that. He didn't just run because of fear, because in chapter 4 he tells us why he fled to Tarshish. He didn't like the Ninevites. He knew God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger. He knew God was going to save them, and he didn't like it. Jonah thought, why would God want to save the people of Nineveh? Jonah felt superior to the pagans. His self-image was built on moral superiority to other cultures and other religions. He made his role as a prophet in Israel his idol. And his self-righteousness had control over him, and he didn't even know it. He was more of a slave to sin than the pagans to which he was called to go to. And unless you understand the essential spirit of sin, 
so that you can see that a very religious person, a very moral person, can be bound by sin more than any other type of irreligious or skeptical person. If you don't understand sin, it's going to defeat you. And may this convict all of us, because sadly, that's exactly how we operate today. We're all Jonah, because we all have the same problems. We may not all be racist like Jonah was. We may not have turned the national interests of our country into an idol. But every human being is deeply self-righteous. And if you don't think you are, then it has complete control over you. Are you bitter? Do you have anxiety? It's your self-righteousness. Can you not take criticism? Or do you desire to criticize? Are you irritable? Grumpy? Does nobody get things right except you? Your inferiority is as much as a matter of self-righteousness as a superiority complex. And the doctrine of original sin can't be more clear in this book of Jonah. And I want to go down this rabbit hole because to help us understand how Jonah, someone like Jonah, can end up in this predicament. Because I believe this doctrine of original sin is a foreign concept, both within and outside of the church. If we don't understand sin, then we can't understand grace. If we don't understand sin, then Christianity will make no sense. So what is sin? First and foremost, sin is a stance of the heart. Before sin produces any fruit in our actions and behaviors, it has to have taken root in our hearts first. Sin is a stance of the heart. All of us has to put our ultimate trust in something. And it's either God or the self. Sin is not breaking the rules. Sin is not the so-called bad guy smoking and drinking and beating people up. The heart of sin says you cannot trust God. He's against you. Sin is using God and not loving God. I will obey if it benefits me. I don't trust God. God is against me. God is not for me. I will use God. I will do things if it helps me get where I want to go. But I'll never do anything out of love for him because I don't love him. That's the beginning. The essence of sin is God is against me. I don't trust him. And therefore, my obedience really isn't obedience, it's conditional. Sin doesn't start with disobedience. Sin starts with conditional obedience, resentful obedience. And because you haven't given your heart to God, you're going to give your heart to something. And Jonah thinks he isn't like these pagans. Like he doesn't have an idol, but he does. If you don't really trust God, if you're conditional in your obedience and you're not with God through thick and thin, if you don't trust God, you're going to have to trust something. If you don't love God, you're going to love something. If you don't find God a beauty for just who he is, you're going to have to put your heart in something because that's what we're built to do. And whatever that something else is, is the non-negotiable. That's the if. Look at your life. What do you say? You say, I can do this religion thing, I can obey God, but I can't obey God if he didn't do this, 
or if he didn't do that, or if he let that happen, or if he doesn't answer this prayer. Everybody has a but. Everyone has an if. Everyone has a condition. And on the other side of that condition is your real God. Anything but God that you make your ultimate love and joy in your life will not only show itself in disobedience, but it will also distort your life. Any good thing that you turn into the ultimate thing and the ultimate meaning in your life will destroy you. Is it family? Is it music? Is it career? Is it independence? Is it parenthood? It can be anything. If your life is moving, moving right along, everything is just fine with you, and you don't have a hunger for the presence of God, that shows you have your real God. Sin is not trusting God and attaching yourself to something else that is not God. You see that you may be a very religious and moral person and doing it all not out of love for God, but to control Him, to get leverage over Him, to look down your nose at other people. You're not serving God, you're serving religion. Moral superiority, you've turned your religion into an idol. Just look at Jonah. This messed him up so much, he was suicidal in chapter 1. Throw me overboard. Throw me into the heart of the, heart of the storm. Are you understanding this? Sin is not the taking of the fruit. Sin is using God instead of loving God. It's conditional obedience. It's giving him things instead of your heart. It's not hear the good guys and hear the bad guys. The Bible does not explain sin that way at all. That's why in the genealogy of Jesus, you have Rahab, a prostitute, you have Bathsheba, an adulteress, and Tamar, an incest victim, and then you have all these so-called good people, because it's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out, it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. The reason why Jonah doesn't care about the Ninevites, and the reason why the average Christian doesn't care, is that Jonah didn't know he was a sinner. He didn't really understand sin. He didn't understand the depths of sin. He didn't understand the nature of sin. He thought he was a good person. And because he thought he was a good person, the idea that God loved him did not, help, did not change him, didn't humble him, didn't transform him a bit. And that's the reason why the average person just sits in pews in churches and they're not changed either. They just assume that certain parts of the world fell off like those right-wing conservatives over here, those left-wing liberals over there. George Whitfield said it best. He said there are two things you have to do in order to become a Christian. First of all, you have to repent of your sin. But that's not enough because even the Pharisees did that. But secondly, you also need to repent of your righteousness. And that's profound because even our righteousness is still as filthy rags. And Christ spoke more against the sins of the Spirit than anything else. We need to recognize that even our righteous deeds, our acts of kindness and service should still be repented of because they're tainted with ulterior motives and self-righteousness. We try and be our own savior by, and keep control of our life by our disobedience, but also by our obedience. 
We try and be our own savior by obeying the rules. And until you see that, until you see that, you will never understand what it means to be a Christian. You will repent of your sins, you'll surrender your life year after year, and nothing ever seems to click. You never really know God. It's because you've repented of your sin, but you've never seen your self-righteousness. It's the last idol you have to pluck out of the heart before you become a Christian. You have to see salvation is of the Lord. And this is how God cures him. How does God cure Jonah? The same way he cures all of us. He lets him sink. He doesn't wait for your conscience. If we waited for our conscience to guide us, we would all be lost forever. Repentance is not God waiting for us to cry out to him. But rather, repentance is always God reaching out to us and sending storms and having us sink so that we can finally see who we really are. As we dive into this prayer, let's consider the position what Jonah is in. Just imagine for a minute what Jonah is experiencing. And a quick side note, I believe he was in, alive inside this sea dragon. There are some camps that actually believe he did die inside the fish and was, and was raised back to life. But I do believe the context of this prayer alludes to the fact that he was fully conscious and thankful to be alive and saved from death. So yes, I believe Jonah was alive throughout this entire experience. And he provides us with some details as to what he's dealing with in this prayer. And I can promise you it wasn't like Geppetto and Pinocchio, where he builds a fire and can see and has moved a room around, move around. Jonah has literally been buried alive. Not even on land. He's been buried alive out in the middle of the sea. Jonah is experiencing a living death inside of a living tomb where he has no, no hope of escape or survival. This is like a horrific nightmare. Just imagine what this would have been like. He's soaking wet, sloshing around in gastric juices that would be extremely irritable and toxic to the body, sharing this space with remnants of whatever else that might be inside there. He's being constricted by the stomach lining of this sea monster, so I can't imagine him having much room. Maybe he can move his arms. Maybe he can't. And let's not forget about the powerful odor and taste of decomposing seafood. Are you nauseated yet? <laughs> Add to that the suffocating shortness of fresh air, the lack of food or drink, the pressure of the fish as it descends to the bottom of the sea, the mounting fear of hours and days with no sign of rescue. He has seaweed wrapped around his head. He wouldn't have seen his surroundings. He is in complete and utter darkness. And just thinking about this boggles my mind. It could not get any worse than this. And despite these circumstances, he is praying to God. And you know what? This was most fascinating to me. He does not, 
He does not make one request to God. Not one inside this most awful predicament. But rather, he is pouring out his soul in thanksgiving and praise that God had saved him from the death and drowning in the depths of the sea. It's incredible to think that Jonah, in his appalling position, would be so relieved to be alive that he was oblivious to survival beyond the belly of a fish with no concern for his future, if he was to have a future. So let's clear a few assumptions off the table. The first assumption that many people make is that the fish is an instrument of threat to the life and well-being of Jonah. And sometimes we think that this fish was some sort of divine punishment for Jonah as he disobeyed and ran from God. And the assumption is that Jonah, in his prayer, is crying out to God to save him from captivity in the belly of the fish. But this assumption that the fish is an instrument of destruction is completely wrong. Jonah is not crying out to God to save him. The fish is the instrument of redemption. The fish was not sent to punish Jonah. The fish was sent to rescue Jonah. The threat to Jonah's life was not the fish. It was the sea. Jonah was thrown into the sea, and he was about to drown and die in the sea. And he is rescued by the fish. But the most significant false assumption about this text is that when Jonah is praying for deliverance, the assumption is that he is praying for deliverance from the belly of the fish. The whole content of his cry is a cry for deliverance. He is, he is praying to be rescued from the sea, not the fish. And the sea is Jonah's belly of Sheol that's about to destroy him. The belly of Sheol and the heart of the sea parallel in verses 2 and 3. They're the same place. Verse 3b says, The flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. This is referring to his position in the sea, about to drown in the sea. And then look at verse 5. He is crying about his predicament in the water. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. And then verse 6, Yea, you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. How did that happen? By the great fish. The prayer is a prayer of deliverance from the sea. And when he is down in there, he finally sees. And what does he see? Let's give Jonah credit. His problem all along was how in the world can God be both just and merciful? Remember, he thought Assyria des deserved to be destroyed, not given a chance for repentance. Because the Assyrians were terrible and wicked people. How in the world can God be merciful toward them? Jonah was saying, if you're not going to be just, then I'm going to be just for you. But in the belly of the fish, he came to realize that yes, if God isn't just, there's no hope for the world. But if he is just, there's no hope for us because we're all sinners. We're all idolaters. We're all guilty of these same things. And so what does Jonah do? What does he see? 
He looks to the temple. He sees the temple. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And again in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Isn't that strange? He's nowhere near the temple. Why is he talking about the temple? It's because he's beginning to realize something. He's beginning to see the depth of his need and the depth of God's love. He's beginning to learn about God's grace. He's not saying, God, just forgive me, please. I broke my oath. I broke my vows. Will you just forgive me and let it go? You know, we don't have much hope in the world if God just lets things go. If God just let evil go, let sin go. Jonah looks to the temple. Why? It's a picture of the gospel. Because the temple is the place of sacrifice. It's a place of justice. In the temple was the mercy seat. In the temple you had the law. In the Ark of the Covenant you had the Ten Commandments, but over the law was sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice, a substitute, a propitiation. In the temple he realizes that sin is taken seriously there. Blood is shed, but it's not the blood of the sinner. And all Jonah knew was that somehow God was going to deal with this mystery. Jonah sensed that somehow God was going to be both just and justifier. He sensed that somehow God is going to punish sin, but yet at the same time forgive. And he began to understand something that we, could, that we today can see better than Jonah. And he begins to praise the grace of God. But he didn't know what we know, that Jonah himself was a living analogy of how God fulfilled what the temple was all about. Because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is our propitiation. And just as Jonah was voluntarily thrown into the stormy sea and saved the sailors in the boat, so Jesus, the Son of God, was voluntarily thrown into the ocean of eternal justice and paid our sin so God can be both just and justifier. This is how God can forgive the Ninevites and still be just. This is why the pagan sailors can be saved and God still be just, because his son was sacrificed. This is how Jonah can be forgiven, and that's how we can be forgiven. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, beginning in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The reason Jonah was thrown into the water and not the wrath of God is because Jesus Christ was thrown into the wrath of God. There was a storm of God's wrath, not just a storm of water. Jesus was truly banished from God's sight. He didn't just go to the bottom of the earth. He went to the bottom of the universe. And it wasn't seaweed wrapped around his head. It was a crown of thorns. 
It wasn't just waves and billows of water over him. It was the eternal justice of God over him. And because he was thrown into the storm, we are all saved. We're like the sailors in the boat. You understand this? Jonah finally got it. And when you see that you deserve to be thrown into the water just like Jonah, just like, Je just like Jonah was, but the reason why we don't get thrown into the water, the reason why our storm is, is there is always to give us breathing room. It's always to wake us up. And all of our storms will be all calm because Jesus took the ultimate storm. He took our place. And I'm telling you, the more you learn about this grace, the more radical it gets. When you see the freeness of God's grace, you're learning. But when you sense the costliness of God's grace to him, you're beginning to change. You're not just knowing about grace, you're beginning to love God's grace. Be changed by it and live by it. And that's what happens to Jonah. Look at verse 8 and 9. This is the climax of the book. Verse 8 and 9 is when grace finally broke through to Jonah. He finally grasped it and began to understand God's grace. Look at what it says in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that verse can literally be translated as those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the case said that is theirs. Their own kesed. Kesed is a Hebrew word that means covenant love. It means permanent love that God gives to people with whom he has a covenant. In the ESV, it's translated as steadfast love. Or better yet, it could be translated as grace. Jonah is saying those who cling to worth of idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But you see, back then, as far as Jonah knew, the only people who God had a covenant with were the Hebrews. And therefore, it's astounding for him to say that, the, that he realized that these, these pagans, these idol worshipers, those pagans, those people in the boat, the people up in Nineveh that he despised, he's realizing that God's covenant love is as much theirs as it is his. That his self-righteousness was keeping grace from him just like their idol worship was, keep, was keeping grace from them. He's saying grace is as much theirs as it is mine. I'm no better than they are. And that's why he's now willing to go to the people that he despised. And verse 9a says, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And now what are Jonah's vows? His vows as a prophet would have been to do whatever God called him to do. And what did he call him to do? He's been called to go to the capital city of the enemy. Jonah is saying that if I obey, I will be sacrificing myself. But I'm going to do it with thanksgiving. His fear has now been eroded. So you see in verse 8, grace humbled him out of his bigotry. And in verse 9, we see that grace assured him out of his fear, and he is now ready to answer the call and fulfill the mission to go to Nineveh. But that's not all. Look at verse 9b. He then says, on the basis of one of those, the, the most 
important and succinct statements about redemption in all of Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said this fish was an Arminian fish because as soon as Jonah said salvation is of the Lord, he vomited him out on the dry land. Salvation is of the Lord. This is the key verse in all the Bible. This is the summary of the Bible. This is the theme of the Bible. This is the whole Bible boiled into one verse. This is what Jesus' whole ministry was about. Salvation is of the Lord. This is what your life is about. Everything that happens to you in your life, this is what God is trying to show you. That salvation is of the Lord. And this is something we have to continually learn and relearn and keep in the forefront of our mind. This is what makes the gospel and the Bible so unique in all the thought forms of the world. Nothing teaches anything like this. No other religion says that the lowest person in the gutter and the most moral outstanding citizen in the world are equally lost and equally need to be saved by grace and grace alone. That is utter devastation for self-righteousness. And no other religion in the world says such a thing. Because the world thinks that everyone is on this spectrum of religious and irreligious. And that everyone fits on there somewhere. But that is not what the Bible says. That's not what the gospel says. That's not what this says. Salvation is of the Lord. The irreligious person doesn't believe they need salvation. And the religious person says salvation is of them. But the Bible says neither. The Bible says salvation is of the Lord, utterly and surely of God. If we think we could add one stitch to the robe of Christ's righteousness, then we would be lost forever. Jonah now understands that the fish is not his ultimate deliverer. The fish was simply the means by which God himself intervened to rescue Jonah. And Jonah makes this declaration that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah did not save himself. Jonah was powerless to save himself. His doom was certain. The only possibly way he could be rescued was by a divine intervention. By God reaching down and doing for Jonah what Jonah could not do for himself. You understand this. This is an incredible illustration of our utter dependence on the sovereign grace of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us realize that salvation is not of us, but of you. By the finished work of your Son on the cross, it's not for the people who think they're righteous, but for the people who know they're sinners. May we deepen our understanding of your grace and see the freeness of it for us, but even more so the costliness of it for you, that we may be changed by it and be instruments for your kingdom in this world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.